Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Why don't we uh, begin in prayer, if you could please stand. Almighty God and Father, as we give thanks to you for this year of faith, we ask you by your grace to strengthen our Holy Father, Pope Benedict, uh, make him strong in the faith and make his voice heard throughout the world to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. We invoke your Holy Spirit upon our time together this evening, that your Spirit will make us both receptive and responsive to your holy will, that we may deepen in our knowledge of the truth and grow in our generous response. We ask this invoking the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, our Mother and our Queen, of St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse. And we pray this in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. My name is Deacon Sabatino Carnazzo, and I am the founding director of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Is there anybody denied it the first time at the Institute of Catholic Culture? A few people. Look at that. Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Very nice to have you. Really, we should have about 50 to 100 hands go up if we were all doing our evangelical duty, and that is to spread the message of Jesus Christ and invite others to be coming to church with us, to be coming to Bible studies, to be coming to programs like this with us. I won't ask how many Catholics invited uh, someone to come to church with you this Sunday. Hmm. We'll move along from that. I think you can get my hint. At the Institute, we are dedicated to teaching the faith, period. What are you going to get here? You're going to get the teachings of the Catholic Church as she has proclaimed from the beginning. We are not embarrassed to tell those truths and to proclaim them loudly and clearly and in a way that is understandable so that adults can grow in their knowledge of the faith as a way of growing in their love of Jesus Christ. As I oftentimes say, you cannot love what you do not know. And so here at the Institute, we are dedicated to educating people, to presenting all aspects of the faith, whether it be history or philosophy or theology or scripture, catechetics, Catholic political theory, whatever it might be, we offer programs on those subjects so that we can grow in our knowledge of the faith. I don't think I even need to introduce this guy, except to say on a personal note, that Father Scalia has always, always shown me what it means to be generous. And every time I have turned to Father Scalia and asked him to help the Institute of Catholic Culture, even if it means offering a 13-part series instead of a 12-part series on the creed, he said, yes, this is something we need to do. And so with that, I want to thank Father Scalia and welcome him back to the Institute Thanks. of Catholic Culture. Sabatino is clearly losing a step because, really, he should have said, even when I asked him to do a 14-part series and just upped it you know, each time, 
moving the goalposts. Uh, it's a joy to be here. The topic for this evening's talk is uh, the first several articles of the Creed. But before I get to that, just two things by way of introduction, or one by way of clarification. Uh, the letter that went out uh, on behalf of the Institute in my name at one point makes a, uh, a reference to the rampant secularism that exists in even, even in many so-called Catholic schools. And um, that should not be taken to mean uh, schools like, well, this school, for example, but rather what it's intended by that is schools like my alma mater, Holy Cross, in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, which even when I was there many, many, many years ago was careening towards secularism, uh, and now I imagine is much worse, and many other schools, colleges, and universities. That's uh, how that should be taken. I don't want it to be interpreted as a statement about the schools in, in our diocese and our parishes because I've, well, uh, I've worked uh, for and with many of them, and I think very highly of them. So I wanted to make that clarification. Another clarification, and this is to that person who watched my last presentation online and took issue with what I said. Because I said that there are three parts to the creed, right? I believe in, well, three parts. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this person responded, Father, it says, I believe four times, not three. And so if you look at your Nicene Creed right here, and you look in the first paragraph, says, I believe in one God. Go down to the next paragraph. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Skip all the way down to the next. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And if you can, you need to move that final paragraph up so that it's part of the third paragraph. Because technically in the Latin, and this is where I think the new translation could have been better, and I think many of you know me as someone who promoted the new translation with great joy, and still do. But... In the Latin, there is a distinction. The whole creed begins with credo, I believe, and then it's credo in unum deum, in unum dominum, in spiritum sanctum. So three times, I believe in. We only use that to refer to God. We don't use that phrase to refer to the church, technically, in the Latin. And so when you get to the article on the church, which in the English is, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, technically it is part of the section on the Holy Spirit. It's not a fourth, I believe. It, it would be better to say, I believe the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Because we do not believe in the church the same way we believe in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'll get to that, and this is, I'm sort of, you know, setting you up. If you want more detailed answer to this, you'll have to stick with the whole, the whole series of 14 lectures, right? Okay? Um, so that is just by way of clarification on that point. Now then, turning to this evening's topic, there's a handout that I hope you've already picked up in the back. And how many of you brought your catechism? If you brought it on your iPhone, that's fine, okay? But uh, didn't I tell you last time, bring your catechism? So, 
I will be referring to the catechism as we go along. I'll be referring to the paragraph numbers. I have put some excerpts on, uh, on the sheet, uh, the ones that I think are really cool, and not only from the catechism, or the most recent catechism, but also from the Roman catechism or the catechism of the Council of Trent. So this evening we begin with, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. That's what we'll discuss tonight. In the Apostles' Creed, it is simpler. I believe in God. So let's take that first. It is the beginning of everything. And it's an extraordinary statement. Simply to say, I believe in God means I believe that there is an all-powerful, well, let's just say for the time being, force or being, and it's not me. It's already making a statement about our very existence. And so the Catechism, paragraph 198, says, Our profession of faith begins with God, for God is the first and the last, the beginning and the end of everything. The Credo begins with God the Father, for the Father is the first divine person of the Most Holy Trinity. Our creed begins with the creation of heaven and earth, for creation is the beginning and foundation of all God's works. So we want to begin correctly. And the first thing, both theologically and spiritually, is to say, I believe in God, and I'm not him. The Catechism goes on, paragraph 199. I believe in God. This first affirmation of the Apostles' Creed is also the most fundamental. It's so obvious to us that we're in danger of passing over how important it is. The whole creed speaks of God, and when it also speaks of man and of the world, it does so in relation to God. And so this one phrase sets the tone for everything else. If we don't get this right, well, we're not going to get the rest of things right either. Again, paragraph 199, and this is a wonderful analogy, and it brings out something that I touched on last time, which is how interconnected the various aspects of our faith are. The other articles of the creed all depend on the first. All other statements in the creed, they depend on this. And then makes a wonderful comparison. Just as the remaining commandments make the first explicit. So there's a great tie-in, the Ten Commandments. That all of the other commandments depend on the first commandment. Uh, We have a, a tendency to sort of chop things up and not see the Ten Commandments as an organic whole. We do the same thing with the creed. We chop it up. Well, this first article is the basis and the font of all of the other truths that we have, just as the Father is the font of all divine life. We'll get to that in a little bit. And so, to say I believe, we need belief because, well, God cannot be seen. To say I believe means... It's not proven. It's not proven the way we can prove things in the material world. But that does not mean that there aren't good reasons to believe. I won't get into all of them now, but of course there are what I think have been mistakenly called the proofs of the existence of God. Well, they're not going to be proofs of the existence of God the way we would prove something in the material world, but they are motives of credibility, reasons to believe. 
the order of creation, um, causality, movement, the goodness we see in things. Let's just take that one for example. When you admit that something is good and that another thing is better, and then there's something else that's even better than all of those, you're establishing just in your mind a hierarchy of goodness, which means that there must be something that is completely and perfectly good. Let's call that God, just for lack of a better term, and so on. Uh, one of the great contributions of theology and philosophy in the last 100, 200 years, especially John Henry Cardinal Newman, blessed Cardinal Newman, and St. Augustine also brings this out, the attentiveness to the interior sort of arguments for the existence of God, that there are certain things within us as human persons that indicate this. For example, uh, the conscience and moral obligations. Everybody will admit of some moral obligations. It's very rare that you will find someone who dismisses them entirely. Where does this whole sense of morality come from? How did it get inside of us? That indicates that there's something out there that has placed this within us to seek moral goodness, to seek what is true. A proof of God? No. But an indication of something more, of that one that is transcendent, and therefore uh, an indication that to believe is not unreasonable. So we can come to knowledge of God and, and these reasons for believing by reason itself, by what is sometimes called natural revelation, looking at the world, its construction, looking at the human person, and coming to uh, that reasonable belief in God. Let me say a word about the way in which we speak about God. We do so by analogy, by analogy. When I say that God is good, it is true. God is good, and I hope you agree. But this is by analogy. Our concept of good does not grasp, it can't encompass what is meant when we say that God is good. He transcends all of what we conceive as good or goodness. And so when we speak of God by analogy, we are saying something true about him, but there's always a greater difference than there is a similarity. So we can say that God is good, God is faithful, uh, God is true, but the way in which he is those things transcends our categories. So we're always speaking by analogy about God. We can't say that our human language encompasses the reality of him. So St. Thomas says, and Catechism quotes this, this alone is the true knowledge of God, to know that God is beyond knowing. That's St. Thomas Aquinas, okay, who was a pretty smart guy, okay? Uh, this alone is the true knowledge of God, to know that God is beyond knowing. So the person who says, yeah, yeah, I, I've, I've done a lot of reading, and I know everything about God now. Okay, that person knows nothing about God. We always begin by recognizing that he is beyond our ability to comprehend completely. This is also what we mean by the term a mystery. Okay, now you parents... I know that you use this just as a way to silence your children. You know, it's a mystery. You know, leave me alone. I can't explain it. Okay. There are others who think, who might hear that word like it's a mystery, kind of like, you know, what Agatha Christie writes. You know, it's, it's something to be solved. There was a kid I knew years ago who came running up to his parents, very excited because he had solved the mystery of the Trinity. 
Okay. Uh, because God is all-powerful. He can do anything. He can be the old guy. He can be the young guy. Or he can be the bird. You know? And that, and, and that solves that. Okay. Now, this is theologically mistaken in several regards. Okay. Uh, first of all, as regards to Trinity, but also the whole concept of a mystery. What do we mean by that? What we mean is that we can understand these truths to some degree, but we will never understand them completely. We cannot encompass these things in our minds. In order to know God fully, you would have to be God. And so a mystery of the faith, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Eucharist, which we regard as the mystery of faith, these things we can understand to a greater or lesser extent, but we will never encompass them completely. We will never understand them completely. And the mystery must always be present. I think a lot of people think they understand the Mass. If you think you understand the Mass, you don't. Uh, We will never understand the Mass completely. That's why we should be kneeling through most of it in humble acknowledgement that this is beyond me, and I need to receive it more than conquer it. So, first, I believe in God. Now, the Nicene Creed adds one detail there. I believe in one God. And again, this is something that I think is so common and obvious to us that we're very likely to skip over it and say, well, of course we, there's only one God. Who would believe otherwise? Well, probably, uh, you know, I think a lot of people in the world today, whether they realize it or not, believe in, in more than one God. And for most of history, in human history, it's a fairly recent development that the three main religions would be monotheistic. So what does it mean to believe in one God? And what I have placed on your sheet there is this passage, of course, prayed frequently by the church, the Shema of ancient Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole being, and with your whole strength. Take to heart these words which I command you today. Keep repeating them to your children. Recite them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them on your arm as a sign and let them be as a pendant on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. The oneness of God. God is one and he is the only God. The Lord, Yahweh is the only God. This seems, again, sort of obvious to us. Why is there only one God? And I quote here a passage from the Roman Catechism, uh, the Catechism of Trent. It must also be confessed that there is but one God, not many gods. For we attribute to God supreme goodness and infinite perfection. And it is impossible that what is supreme and most perfect could be common to many. If a being lack anything that constitutes supreme perfection, it is therefore imperfect and cannot have the nature of God. This is a very clear point. You can't have more than one all-powerful being. (laughs) One of them is going to be on the losing end of that, right? And so when we acknowledge God is all-powerful, there can only be one of him. If we attribute to him supreme goodness and infinite perfection, those things cannot be common to more than one God. 
Make note of this for when we get to the Trinity, okay? Because you can't have more than one God sharing supreme goodness and infinite perfection. As regards creation, make note of this because that'll be next week's talk. There's only one creator. There's not more than one creator. This, again, might seem obvious to us, but for much of history, you had religions or cults popping up that would posit more than one deity in charge of different aspects of creation. Probably the most common one in the history of Christianity it keeps popping up is you know, to think that there's one God that created everything that is spiritual because the spiritual is good, and then there's a bad God who created the things that are physical, and physical is bad. So you have this dualism because it fails to acknowledge one God, therefore one creator. And what does this mean for us personally? And here is where we turn to himself, Cardinal Ratzinger. And he says this declaration, uh, specifically the Shema of Israel, the belief in one God, he says it is a declaration of war on all pagan worship. It is a renunciation of gods of one's own, or in other words, of the deification of one's own possessions, something which is fundamental to polytheism. See how this article, I believe, in one God leads directly to the first commandment? If there is only one God, then we can't have any false gods placed before him. Whenever we say, I believe in one God, we're saying, I am not going to place anything before God. I am not going to place anything before him. I am not going to value any pleasure or possession or, or power more than God. And those are always the three things that tempt us away. And those are always the three things that lead to paganism and polytheism. In fact, there are a lot of polytheists, aren't there? There are a lot of people who've made gods of little things in their lives. And anything becomes a god that you place before the one god. Another aspect here, and I'll just make note of it before we move on, God is one also means that God is not divided. They're not different parts of God. Okay, make note of that, because when we get to the Trinity, that's going to be very important. The Catechism then goes on to speak of God's revelation of his name. And I thought this was sort of a curious, it's always struck me as a curious uh, progression through the creed until I picked up and started rereading Cardinal Ratzinger's Introduction to Christianity, which is a meditation on the creed. And I went, oh, that's where the catechism got it. You know, the guy in charge of compiling the catechism sort of had already done a lot of this work. Okay. So... Just this, this point about God revealing his name. And here we are getting to the explicitly Judeo-Christian tradition. God reveals his name, and most of all, the holy name, Yahweh. Uh, whenever you see the capital letters for Lord, that's what's being referred to as the holy name. And the Catechism has this wonderful line, God has a name he is not an anonymous force. He is not an anonymous force. It's a wonderful thing to keep in mind because I think a lot of people reduce him to that. He's out there somewhere, uh, like the force itself from Star Wars. He's out there somewhere. That's not what we believe. 
we believe that God is personal, and that is why he can have a name, and that's why he can reveal that name to us. Catechism goes on, to disclose one's name is to make oneself known to others. In a way, it is to hand oneself over by becoming accessible, capable of being known more intimately and addressed personally. This phrase here, in a way, it is to hand oneself over. Now, those of you who are uh, at St. Ambrose for the last talk, you might remember, I hope you do, I mentioned to say I believe could also, the word credo could also be translated, I hand myself over to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what the Catechism is pointing out here is that when God revealed his holy name, he was in a sense handing himself over to us. So one of the reasons for us to believe, one of the motives, is God has already handed himself over to us, and he invites us to respond likewise. He's entrusted his holy name to us. We already know this personally, you know, when, and this is why it's kind of rude when people immediately start calling you by name. You know, look at your credit card and go, hey, Sam, how are you? Like, well, do I know you? No, the, the name is something very personal. And so by taking a name to himself and revealing himself through that name, God is, in a sense, handing himself over. And what is this name? What does it mean? I am who am. I am who am. <laughs> what kind of name is that? Okay. This is a mysterious name. And so the Lord both entrusts himself to us, hands himself over, but at the same time, he remains a mystery. Like the Eucharist. <laughs> he hands himself over to you. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. And yet, he remains a mystery. So the Catechism says, paragraph 206, the divine name, I am, who am, is mysterious just as God is mystery. It is at once a name revealed and something like the refusal of a name. He's chosen a name that enhances, does not diminish his mystery. That paragraph concludes, he is the hidden God his name is ineffable, and he is the God who makes himself close to men. So this name, it brings out how God is very close to us, but also transcends us. He is both closer to us than we are to ourselves, and yet reigns in highest heaven. Now, one of the attributes of God, of course, in the Catechism lists is, is love, love itself. That's one of the things that Israel, of course, comes to realize and then the Catechism sort of trips into the doctrine of the Trinity. Because once we say that God is love, he must therefore be more than one person. In order to be love itself, you need to be more than one person, unless you're really, really conceited. Right? We do not believe just that God is loving. We believe that he is love itself, which admits of a relationship. So within God, there must be a relationship. So that's paragraph 221. And I just want to point out, this is a very interesting thing in the Catechism. We're talking about the oneness of God. It sort of bleeds into the discussion of the Trinity. Because these things cannot be separated. Because our faith is whole and entire. So, let's 
turn to that most important doctrine. The central mystery of our faith and of our life. Here's a question. If God were not three persons, how would your life be different? If the Pope came out tomorrow and infallibly said, actually, God's just one, sorry. Um, How would your life be different? Your life, I mean, I think a lot of Christians, their lives actually wouldn't be much different because they don't think about the Trinity that much. This is the central mystery. This is the one that we will behold for eternity. In the hierarchy of the truths of faith, it is the most fundamental and essential. I'm going to talk about it in 15 minutes. <laughs> just settle it just like that. Highest, most central, essential, and so on. Before we get into the meat of this doctrine itself, uh, paragraph 237 of the Catechism says, God has left traces of his Trinitarian being in his work of creation. It's a very interesting line. I'd like to bring that out more. won't have time, but... And in his revelation throughout the Old Testament. The Trinity is not absent in the Old Testament. We see hints and indications of it. The Catechism itself is Trinitarian. The way many of these sections are structured, the way many of the the articles of the Creed, even the sacraments and the liturgy, the way they're explained is Trinitarian, bringing out how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all, each in its appropriate manner, involved in these works, involved in the sacraments, involved in our prayer, involved uh, in our moral life. And so as we go through uh, the creed, uh, I hope to bring that out more. Uh, There's also a distinction made between what is called theology, which is just thinking about uh, God himself, God in himself, and then what is called economy, which is the way in which God reveals himself to us, reveals himself. This is a distinctive aspect of Christianity. God reveals himself. He is personal. That makes him distinct from the Eastern religions, which God is really just an anonymous force. And he reveals himself, and this makes it distinct from Islam. Because Allah, he's not really interested in a personal relationship. He's not revealing his inner life. He's just giving commands for obedience. That's it. What we believe is, no, God has revealed himself. He is personal. He's revealed his inner life to us, which we call the Trinity. We get to the theology by way of the economy. In other words, we get to what we believe about this by way of how God has revealed it to us. The data for the science of theology, the data is revelation, is what God has revealed. We take that data and then we get uh, to the conclusions from there. Uh, we don't take our conclusions and then construct the data, as some scientists might do. Okay, but theology really is a science, and like any other science, it's got, it's got a source for data, and then it, it applies the science to that to draw conclusions. Our data is what God has accomplished, and from that we have the teaching on the Trinity, because God has revealed that. So, paragraph 238, it begins talking about God as Father by analogy, by analogy. And I'm, I'm afraid that many, if not most Catholics, 
do not realize that when we say God is Father, we're not saying he's, it's as if he's a father or he's kind of like your dad. That's not, that's not what we mean. Hopefully your dad is a good sort of representative, right? But we don't mean that. Many religions will refer to God as father by analogy. He is like a father because he's the source of life. He's like a father because he takes care of us, uh, and so on. Paragraph 240 has this great statement. Jesus revealed that God is father in an unheard of sense. He is father not only in being creator, he is eternally father in relation to his only son. So, what this means is, to say that God is Father, what we mean by that is that God is Father before the creation of the world, before He created anything outside of Himself. He is already Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is eternally Father. He did not become Father by creating the world and then adopting us as His children. He is eternally Father with or without us. So I, I like to say to you know, kids in the school, God did not need to create you. Which is, you know, right, it's a wonderful thing to say to kids. They love that. Um, um, it's just to the middle schoolers because we can, can engage in a little uh, discussion about it. Because inevitably, one of them says, Father, that's really mean. It's not mean at all. Actually, it would be worse to tell you God had to create you. He didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, he's stuck with you. Okay? Um, that, would be, that would be cruel. It's a beautiful thing to think. God is perfectly happy in himself as a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created us anyway. And made us his children in his eternal son. So, we'll get to this more later. But when we think of ourselves as children of God... It's not as if we are children. We are really his children because we are in his eternal son. Jesus revealed that God is father in an unheard of sense. I have uh, included on the sheet a wonderful passage from the Athanasian Creed. It's just sort of a, a very bold announcement of the Trinity. And then after that, a passage from the Roman Catechism, the Catechism of the Council of Trent. And it says in there, the third line down, let the pastor teach that the terms nature and person used to express this mystery should be most scrupulously retained. Okay. The Roman Catechism was meant for pastors. It wasn't meant to be put in the hands of all the faithful because this is the 16th century and... Just didn't have that kind of publishing. Uh, it was sort of a handbook for pastors to teach the faith. This line intrigues me because it touches on the importance of language in speaking about the Trinity. And the current catechism in paragraph 251 gets to the same point. In order to articulate the dogma of the Trinity, the church had to develop its own terminology with the help of certain notions of philosophical origin. Substance, person or hypostasis, relation, and so on. I point this out because I, I just want to emphasize, it's kind of a side point, but it isn't at the same time, the importance of the proper vocabulary 
in our faith. We have a vocabulary that has developed over centuries. We shouldn't get rid of it quickly. And so there are theologians, you know, 60 years ago or so, who wanted to stop talking about transubstantiation. Now that's impious. To get rid of something that has, the, the word transubstantiation, which the church has handed down for centuries, to get rid of that and say, talk about transsignification or transfinalization or other things like that, which in the end are just heretical. Well, no, we want to preserve the vocabulary that we have. Consubstantial is a really good one. So um, I'm working on a song called Have Yourselves a Consubstantial Christmas. Okay. <laughs> It's, it's, I don't imagine it's going to make the charts, but uh, um, theologically it'll be good. Um, but but that, that term, which, which sort of annoyed a lot of people, uh, well, it's getting us back to our traditional vocabulary. Okay, so let's talk about that. In God, we have one divine nature. One divine nature. Remember I said that there can't be many omnipotent gods? There can only be one all-powerful God. One divine nature. Three persons. What's the difference? I would quiz those of you who grew up with the Baltimore Catechism, but I'm going to be nice. The nature is what? The person is who? So what are you? Well, you are human because you have a human nature, most of you. Um, <laughs> who are you? Well, then you speak your name. Okay, so that's the distinction. Now, with each of us, we have just one nature and one person. But in the Trinity, there is one nature and three persons. Now, these three paragraphs of the Catechism are extraordinarily tight and important. 253 four and five. So first, the Trinity is one. We do not confess three gods, but one God and three persons. The consubstantial Trinity. What does consubstantial mean? One in being of one nature. So three in one nature. Each of the persons is that supreme reality. These would be the divine substance, essence, or nature. Each person is entirely God. God, remember I said before, you cannot share the divine nature. You can't carve it up and say, okay, I'll give you 33% and then you get 33%. You can't carve it up like that. God is one. The Trinity is one. And so this keeps us from polytheism. There's no sharing. So what we say about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is entirely God. The Son is entirely God. The Father is entirely God. And all three of them together don't make up three gods, but just the one God. So first, the Trinity is one. Second, the divine persons are really distinct from one another. God is one, but not solitary. I love that line. Okay, And you know, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, is uh, the, the, the Arabic writing on the inside and outside, is a screed against the triune God. It's saying, you know, do not be deceived. It's not fitting that God should have a son. Okay? This line, I think, is a rebuke. God is one, but not solitary. There are different ways of being one, aren't there? 
There's the loner, who's lonely. And he's one, right? But he's also kind of miserable, because <laughs> he's just alone. And then there's the oneness of a family that is beautiful and warm and we all desire and strive for. Which would you rather have? Okay, the, the solitary oneness, well, that's Allah. Uh, he dwells just with himself, that's it. The oneness of the Trinity is a oneness that is rooted in love. Three persons there perfectly united. So God is one, but not solitary. Goes on, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are not simply names designating modalities of the divine being. This is one of the mistakes that was made and is still made. That, you know, the kid that I mentioned earlier, God sometimes can be the Father, sometimes can be the Son, or the bird, you know. Well, when we talk about the Trinity, it's not like God is just, you know, going into the changing room and putting on a different costume and coming out as a different person for different acts in the history of salvation. It's not different modes of being. The persons are really distinct. Now, you might have already come to this conclusion. It's a sad one. This also means St. Patrick was wrong. The clover really isn't that good an image of the Trinity. <laughs> okay? It's a good start for a child. You know, okay, you've got one plant, three, you know, three, three petals here. Okay, well, no, actually, that's, that's not what the Trinity is at all. Those are three parts of one plant. That's not what we believe about the Trinity. Oneness and distinction of persons. They are distinct from one another in their relations of origin. And this, this leads to the next paragraph, which I think brings this up better. The divine persons are relative to one another. In other words, the way their distinctions arrive is by their relationship to one another. The Son is everything that the Father is except Father. The Father is everything that the Son is except the Son. And so on, the Holy Spirit. And so each one possesses everything that the other has except that relationship. That is what distinguishes them. I know this is all very clear. Clear, clear, clear. Okay. Who was it? I think it was Blessed John the 23rd who said, you can't speak about the Trinity for more than five minutes without going into heresy. You know, <laughs> father's not wearing a watch, right? Um, but these are the pegs that we put in place, these three paragraphs. So, so good. Keeping these pegs in place. This is theology that was hard won. Seven centuries of debating. I mean, think about how miserable our debates are. I mean, really, we're debating something that should be, that is really obvious, something like marriage. One man, one woman, that should be pretty obvious. Most people for most of history got that right. In the ancient world, they argued about the Trinity. Now, that's worth arguing about. It was seven centuries of debating this that has produced this beautiful uh, theology, which is right there in the catechism that you have in hand, right? Uh, I want to make mention of another aspect in speaking of the Trinity, and that is what is called the doctrine of appropriation. <laughs> and to find a good shorthand definition of it, what did I do? What would you do? I Googled it, okay? <laughs> Appropriations, what did I get? Appropriations committee, and uh, you know, <laughs> just got, you know, it's all about money. Um, and uh, well, you go to Father Hardin, of course, and Father Hardin has a good definition. 
The doctrine of appropriation is a manner of speaking in which the properties and activities of God, though common to the three divine persons, are attributed or appropriated to an individual person. So who creates? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we appropriate that sort of role to the Father. Now the Son and the Holy Spirit are involved as well. It's God who is doing it. But we attribute that primarily to the Father. We associate Him with that most of all. Who redeems? The Son. Well, but it's the Father and the Holy Spirit too, right? Who sanctifies? Well, the Holy Spirit. Well, the Father and the... So you see, appropriation is when we, we apply the work of the triune God to one specific person for whom it seems to fit best. But realizing that when we're encountering one person of God, the other two are there as well. Okay, you can't separate them. And that's why years ago, um, some, I think it was up in Canada, a parish that was corrected, they were baptizing in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier. Okay. Now, this is disobedient, right? <laughs> Not just to the church, but to our Lord who said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them you know, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he didn't say, or words to that effect. You know? <laughs> um, he was pretty clear. So it's disobedience, but it's also bad theology. Because each one of them is creator, redeemer, sanctifier. So just because we call the Son Redeemer doesn't mean that the Father is not involved in the act of redemption as well, in the Holy Spirit. That's why we sort of divide up the roles. But it doesn't mean that the roles are really divided. It's just our way of speaking. It's helpful for us. Paragraph 267 touches on this. Inseparable in what they are, the divine persons are also inseparable in what they do. But within the single divine operation, each shows forth what is proper to him in the Trinity. Okay, so there's things that are sort of proper to each person. It doesn't mean that the others are not involved as well. The worst Trinitarian theology is found in Paradise Lost. Okay, it's terrible. (laughs) Because it really depicts a huge sort of division between the Father and the Son. Okay. Let's conclude with this last uh, aspect of the article, Almighty. What does it mean that God is Almighty? And the Catechism gives these three terms, paragraph 268, in italics, so they're easy to find. We believe that his might is universal, for God who created everything also rules everything and can do everything. God's power is loving, for he is our Father. And mysterious, for only faith can discern when it is made perfect in weakness. So, let's take uh, the first one. What do we mean when we say he is almighty and it's universal? He can do what he wills. He can do all things. Look at the bottom of the page. I love this. If you've ever had that, that, that smart aleck little answer from an eighth grader, like I did my first visit to a classroom ever as a priest, which is, if God is all-powerful, can do anything, can he create a stone so big even he can't move it? Okay. And, you know, it's the eighth grader thinking, aha, uh-huh, gotcha, Father, right? You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm all of 13 years old and I've figured it out. Um, it's not even a trick question, it's a dumb question. The Roman Catechism, this is wonderful. But though God can do all things, yet he cannot lie or deceive or be deceived. He cannot sin or cease to exist or be ignorant of anything. 
These defects are compatible with those beings only whose actions are imperfect. But God, whose acts are always most perfect, is said to be incapable of such things simply because the capability of doing them implies weakness, not the supreme and infinite power over all things which God possesses. And what this means is God cannot be contradictory. God does not contradict himself. Go back and read the Regensburg Address of Pope Benedict. This is one of the big, big distinctions in our belief of God as Almighty and the Muslim belief of Allah as Almighty. The Muslim belief is that reason would be a constraint on God's omnipotence. Our understanding is God is reasonable, and that is no constraint on his power. If we don't understand what God is doing, that means that our intellect is limited. It doesn't mean that God has just violated reason. And so we, for example, struggle over the story of Abraham and Isaac. How is it that God, who abhors human sacrifice, then commands Abraham to sacrifice his son? How can, how can that be? And, and for centuries. And there's some very, very good writings to help to explain it or bring out the, uh, a certain beauty of the whole story. But we, the point is, we struggle to resolve this. How can a God who is reasonable do this? What we're not willing to say is that God can contradict himself. The predominant theology in Islam says God can do that. He can say don't sacrifice today and tomorrow say sacrifice. To be almighty does not mean to be capricious or random or unreasonable. That is not what we believe. When God's power is at work in a way that we don't understand, the lack of understanding is on our part. It's not a lack of reasonableness on God's part. And so we struggle to understand God's mighty power. But we don't say that, well, he, he can just do whatever he wills and he doesn't have to be reasonable. Uh, God is entirely reasonable. Second aspect here. Universal, he can do whatever he wills, and it's always in keeping with his divine intellect and reason. God's power is loving. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. His almighty power is at the service of his fatherhood. His almighty power is at the service of his fatherhood. It is at the service of his love for his children. He is not running roughshod over us. It sometimes feels that way. But his almighty power is at uh, the service of our salvation. And so these two things, and I love this line, uh, paragraph 270, God is the Father Almighty whose fatherhood and power shed light on one another. He is not a father who is weak and uncaring, but he is not someone who is almighty and abusive. These two things shed light on one another. And gentlemen, by the way, shed light on fatherhood and what true fatherhood should be, which is strong, loving, and wise, as St. Paul says. 271 touches on the point that I just mentioned, and, of course, Brother Thomas bringing it out even more. God's almighty power is in no way arbitrary. In God, power, essence, will, intellect, wisdom, and justice are all identical. Nothing, therefore, can be in God's power which could not be in his just will or his wise intellect. There, Brother Thomas summarizing it very neatly. And finally, 
And I think this is a uniquely sort of modern contribution to catechesis. And that's the mystery of God's almighty power. This is written by a generation of men who, like Cardinal Ratzinger and John Paul II, right, who survived World War II and, and saw the carnage and heard the questions of many people, where was God? If God is almighty, where was he? So this is a wonderful paragraph here. Faith in God the Father Almighty can be put to the test by the experience of evil and suffering. I love this. This is typical of Cardinal Ratzinger. He's looking the modern world straight in the face, saying, you've challenged us on this point. Faith in God the Father Almighty can be put to the test by the experience of evil and suffering. We are not strangers to this. We know it. We're not running away from this question. God can sometimes seem to be absent and incapable of stopping evil. Just ask our Lord's mother at the foot of the cross. God can seem to be absent. But in the most mysterious way, God the Father has revealed his almighty power in the voluntary humiliation and resurrection of his son by which he conquered evil. Wonderful conclusion to this section. The Father Almighty reveals his power most of all in the capacity of God to humble himself, to undergo humiliation, suffering, and death for our sake. And that is a mysterious answer to the question of, you know, why is there evil? Uh, Where is God? God is actually the one who is suffering with us, suffering with us in the midst of evil so as to bring us to new life, triumphant over it. Thank you for your attention this evening. Next week, we will speak about creation, which is nice, and the fall, not so nice, except when we get to the promise of a redeemer. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, Father Scalia, for taking the time to be with us this evening to offer such a wonderful presentation. As many of you know, this is part two of 13 or 14. Thank you for the invitation to make it 14. You mentioned uh, Abraham and Isaac. How do you explain? (laughs) Uh, I think the most beautiful explanation is... Let me lead with a conclusion that God was introducing Abraham into his own fatherhood. Uh, Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love. And uh, he takes Isaac, and they go a three-day journey. So for three days, Isaac is as good as dead. Places wood on Isaac's back as they walk up the mountain. Isaac asks, we've got the wood. We've got the the flame, we've got the knife, but we don't have the victim for sacrifice. And Abraham does not say, well, Isaac, I've got some bad news for you. But um, (laughs) he says, uh, Deus providebit, God will provide. God himself will provide. Abraham is receiving a lesson in fatherhood, and, and that is offering his son as the father would ultimately offer his son, who was in the tomb three days. Prior to that, of course, placed wood on his back and walked up the mountain and offered his life, and that is God providing. And the tradition has it that the very mountain that Isaac and Abraham were climbing was Mount Moriah, which is where the temple was eventually built and became Mount Zion, and where our Lord was crucified. So that's provisional. 
It's a provisional explanation. I mean, ultimately, this is a mystery, and we're not going to be able to pierce this entirely. Father, on uh, the Catechism 271, in the quote from St. Thomas, could you please comment on the uh, absence of the word or the characteristic uh, or property of mercy, please? Question mark. <laughs> In God, power, essence, will, intellect, wisdom, and justice are all identical. Uh, yeah. Absent there is mercy, and probably a lot of other properties as well. Yes. I would have to take a look at the context in which St. Thomas is talking about that. And so offhand, I wouldn't be able to say why he omitted you know, one attribute of God or another. But what he is getting at there is, when we say God is one, part of what that means is that he is simple. You know, not the way some people in the world are simple. Okay, but simple, he, there is no division within him. He is not constructed of different parts. And so it's not as though his power is one part, his intellect is another part, his will is another part, and so on. No, all of these are one in God. And we sort of parse them and, and in a sense, distinguish them so that we can understand things better. But in him, as St. Thomas says, they are all identical, which is, again, why we do not believe that his power can be arbitrary or unreasonable or against uh, his intellect. There's no division between God's intellect and his will. Let me take this a little further here. There is a difference, and Pope Benedict commented on this in his Regensburg Address. Christianity nearly fell into this trap, this kind of theology. There's a difference between saying that God commands what is good, on one hand, and then saying, on the other hand, what God commands is good. And the difference is this. God commands what is good because with his intellect, he knows what is good for us. And so he commands it because it is good. Some people fall into the trap of thinking just because God commands it, it becomes good. So he can command something arbitrary and unreasonable, but because he commanded it, it became good. As the Pope has pointed out, that is the predominant Muslim theology, is that whatever Allah commands is good, even if it is manifestly not good. What we believe is it doesn't become good just by his commanding it. He commands it because it already is good. And he knows our good better than we do. Father, we have an uh, email from McKaysville, Virginia. I don't know where that is, but the question is, uh, next to prayer, what might we do to strengthen our relationship to an understanding of such a mystery as the Trinity? Uh, <laughs> aside from prayer... Well, I think reading through these parts of the Catechism again, and actually, as regards this point of prayer, <laughs> take this part of the Catechism and pray over it. Make it points of meditation. Why not? Cultivating that, uh, you know, the doctrine of appropriation, right? Cultivating that distinct relationship with each person. We should have a distinct relationship with the Spirit, the Son, the Father, and more deliberately doing that being more immersed in the liturgy of the church. The doxology of the Mass, it, it summarizes everything. Through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours. Um, the sign of the cross, the glory be, <laughs> asking for a deeper faith in that. So. Father, another Trinity question. 
I know God revealed that he is Trinity, three persons. Would logic dictate that God would have to be Trinity? Great question. Um, now that he's revealed it, yes. <laughs> no, th- th- this is very interesting. There are certain things that, that have been revealed to us that since they've been revealed, we can't think of things being otherwise. Uh, the world was created. It's not eternal. The pagan philosophers thought the world was eternal. The notion of the world having a beginning and an end, that's a Christian contribution to the world of philosophy. Would we be able to arrive by just human reason to the conclusion that God is three persons? No. We would never have gotten that. That is one of those things that needs to be revealed to us. Our human reason can lead us to know that that there is a God, that this God is one, that he is almighty, and many other things besides. But our human reason would not have been able to penetrate that mystery and figure out that he is triune. Okay? And this is why doctrine is so important for humility. You know, why do we believe this? It's not because we Catholics, you know, we're a lot smarter than other people. And we figured it out. No, it's been revealed to us. The most beautiful thing about the Trinity is he has revealed himself to us. Not just aspects of himself, but his interior life. And so recognizing that we could not have come to that conclusion by our human reason alone, it just heightens this awareness that he has revealed this to me as a pure gift and invited me into this. Are you going to mention Socrates? Would you please? Okay. Well, he asked me to make a reference. In um, Plato, there was a discussion that I read where Socrates, or one of his uh, people he was talking to, pitied God. And the other person said, how could you possibly pity God who's all-powerful? He said, well, he's lonely. No one can give him equal love. We're not equal to God, so we can't meet him on his level for love. And so they concluded that God was lonely, so therefore that God was imperfect. But that was not my question. Um, it's okay, you had my permission. I, I, I was, okay. Okay, but my, my question is, you mentioned there are references in the Old Testament. Other than let us make man in our image and likeness, what other passages would there be in the Old Testament that would hint at or state or affirm or lead us to the conclusion of a trinity? Um, I didn't bring my Bible. I got my catechism. You see that? that? If you don't bring your Bible, how can you answer these questions? I would have said it's on my iPhone, but that would have gotten even more wrath from him. Yes, it would have. (laughs) Uh, The Book of Wisdom uh, would be an indication of that and uh, wisdom playing before the throne of God. You know, our Lord at no point sits down and says, okay, listen, guys, I'm eternally begotten of the Father. Okay, God from God, light from light. So he never gives a theology lesson. He reveals it in his very being. And so in the Old Testament, it's even more shrouded. Uh, Let us make man in, in his own image. And even before that, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now that can be read one way, and was for centuries read one way. But once the Holy Spirit is revealed through the Son... Then we go back and look at it and say, oh, now we're seeing the Holy Spirit involved in the very process of creation. And so throughout the prophets, we hear about the Spirit of God entering into them. 
And so it's read in a new light once we have the doctrine of the Trinity. And this gets back to that old phrase that the New Testament lies hidden in the old, and the old is revealed in the new. Would that the Institute of Catholic Culture had been on the road to Emmaus with our Lord, okay? You know, recording the whole thing, broadcasting it, okay? Because what does our Lord do? He goes through all of the scripture and the prophets, right? And he interprets to them everything that referred to him. You guys didn't take it down? (laughs) You didn't take notes? Okay, that's a good series, is the typology of our Lord in the Old Testament. And so our Lord reveals all of this, and the church has looked at the Old Testament and defended the validity of it by saying, no, we can discern his plan now that has been fully revealed. Now, the last question is not a question, it's my comment on Socrates. Okay, to pity God because he cannot be loved by one equal to himself. First of all, we all want that, don't we? We all want to be loved by one who is like us. So the creation of Eve, God casts a deep sleep over Adam, and from his rib uh, draws Eve. But before that, what does he do? He creates all of the beasts and the animals, and he brings them before Adam, and Adam names each of them. But none of them was a suitable partner for Adam. Now, this is kind of a funny scene. Is God getting it wrong? He's going, okay, giraffe. No? Um, Armadillo. What? What? Um, And so it's to convey to us in Scripture something that is true about the human heart. That loving relationship requires a peer, an equal. And so Eve is created from his side, drawn from his side, not from his feet. She's not below him, not from his head. She's not above him, but from his side a suitable partner for him. That is something that we all desire. Now, speaking by way of analogy, we can think the same thing of God. And I think the point you raised is that in the Trinity, God does have one equal to himself who loves him in return. The Father, in his expression of himself, which is the word of God, in the beginning was the word, his expression of himself is so perfect of course, because God is perfect in all he does, that that is another person who loves him in return. And from that relationship of love proceeds the Holy Spirit. Or rather, the Holy Spirit is the relationship of love. And so in God, yeah, there is no loneliness. There is no loneliness. Uh, Allah, we can pity. can say he doesn't have anybody to love him in return. And worse yet, he doesn't seem interested in it. (laughs) Now, let me conclude with this. Not only does God have a son, not only does the Father have a son who is equal to him in all things and who can love him perfectly in return, but in that son, he has made us his children so that we can love the Father with the love of the Son. So even more amazing than the Trinity is the fact that we've been drawn into that life. And what we are supposed to be doing is loving the Father with the heart of the Son. When we think of the sacred heart of Jesus, we think just usually of his love for us because we're selfish. Okay? <laughs> but we should also think that, no, he has placed within us the capability to participate in the Son's love 
for him. That's even more extraordinary. And so just another example of how our faith is all connected. Teaching on the Trinity, it seeps into the teaching on grace. Grace makes us partakers of the divine nature, able to love the Father in the Son, with the very heart of the Son. Thank you very much, Father. Thank you. The Lord be with you. Through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse, may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you, Father Scalia. See you next week. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.